Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of the Gabfest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 4th, 2020, the Inspecting the Bunker edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider. I have flashbanged the cats, tear gassed the kids to clear a path to my closet where I'm doing a photo op, a Zoom photo op in my closet. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes joins me from his home in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. I'm actually on the road. I'm not in my new home in New York City. I'm out working. Oh, that's good for you. I'm actually Emily in D- Baslon. I'm in D.C. at the moment in my travels. Oh, waving at you. Yeah. Oh my God, we're in the same city. That's that's really funny. I've I, I've been traveling like it's such a weird. It's very weird traveling in this moment, and uh, so I've kind of lost track of where I am. Um, well, it's nice to see you wherever you are. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily from New Haven. Hello. Hello. On today's GabFest, we're going to be joined by the New York Times' Jamel Bowie to talk about the extraordinary protests inspired by the murder of George Floyd. What do the demonstrators want? Why have these protests spread so far and so quickly? What will cause these protests to ease and the work of reform to begin? And Jamel will also join us to talk about the presidency and the dictatorship, Trump and the political implications of these protests, the clearing of Lafayette Park, the authoritarianism that's been on display from him. How is all that going to play out politically in the coming months? Then we will talk about COVID, the pandemic. So we have declining hospitalizations. We have some states continuing to show growth in cases, but a general sense of public exhaustion with the pandemic. How is that going to play out over the rest of the summer? Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And listeners... We really miss seeing you at our live shows, and so that's why we're really looking forward to seeing you online next Wednesday night, June 10th at 7.30 Eastern Time, when we will be streaming on Slate's Facebook a live GabFest. Join us from the comfort of your home, ask us your own questions, and we're going to talk about John's book, which will be out by then, so hopefully you'll have ordered a copy. Actually, it won't be out by then. It won't be out by then. It definitely will not be out by then, but you'll have pre-ordered a copy and, uh, and you will be able to hear John talk about some of the highlights so you'll know which pages to look at for when your copy arrives. Any case, go to slate.com slash live for more information. Please come join us next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. for our live show. We're going to talk now about the incredible protest movement that's arisen in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police 10 days ago. We are joined by a frequent GabFest guest, Jamel Bowie. He's a New York Times columnist. Hello, Jamel. Hello, hello. So, Jamel, let's start with this sort of threshold question, which is that the protest movement that has arisen, which is now uh, taken to the streets of almost every major American city, lots of towns, 
it is much it rose faster more extensively than any such movement in the past it's it is the largest movement of street protest arguably since the 1960s why did this murder and this event and this time do you think create this much anger and this much frustration and this much action I feel like you could write an entire book on just trying to answer that question because it is sort of like a bunch of different things, not all of them directly happening in 2020, right? And so the wave of protests that followed Eric Garner's uh, killing and Michael Brown's killing in 2014 sort of first is the thing that sort of like generates this the language of this kind of um, – a language for this kind of event, right? You have – um, a bunch of people, many of them uh, quite young, who get their first experience of protest, get their first experience of organizing, get their first experience of how to handle police, get sort of all of this essential training and how to think of this. And also those protests and the ones that happened in 2015 also impact public opinion. And so in the wake of all of that, you see public opinion, especially among white Democrats, move towards, you'd call a far more racially liberal position than it did prior. And so the, the 2014 and 2016 period ends up, in retrospect, like priming the public, or at least a, a, a function, a swath of the public for a certain reaction in the event that something like this happens again, or something like Eric Garner's killing or Michael Brown's killing or Tamir Rice's happens again. Let's skip over 2017, 18, 19. And in 2020, you have the confluence of a bunch of different events. The memory of the, of the stuff that happened in the previous decade is still there. The pandemic and subsequent recession has left a lot of people idle even more people, especially young people, especially young black people without jobs. And then I think just in terms of the killing of George Floyd himself, I think that video is especially bad. I think it's bad in a way that it just has not been true of past killings. The only one that even comes close in my mind is the Walter Scott killing in uh, North Charleston back in 2015, where it was just so apparent that uh, Scott posed no threat. But the length of the video, the extent to which Floyd is voicing his pain and distress in very easy to understand terms. Like everything about it is unambiguously terrible. And then you have um, the president who, whose very presence, you know, willing to say anything about this accelerates things. And I think you have the recipe for mass demonstrations. And then when the police respond to those mass demonstrations in such a draconian way, that just kind of like throws even more fuel on the fire. Um, one thing I took away from Ferguson back in 2014 was that the mere presence of uh, militarized police acts as something that agitates crowds and generates a response and resistance. Everything has literally hit at once to, to, produce, to produce this. So um, this really a question for anybody but emily you're you're closest to me what is your sense about what what movement would look like in these demonstrations i mean we've i think we've passed through there was a period a real uh kind of initial uh kind of real fervor and excitement there were some particular moments of violence much of it instigated by the police and then looting uh which seems to have that also seems to have quieted and now we continue to have demonstrations i I'm struggling with trying to understand what is it that resolves this? What is it that what is it that people are waiting for? In in Richmond, we have this amazing 
fact of the Robert E. Lee statue coming down, which is fantastic. I mean, that's great. But is it individual acts like that? Is it the charging of uh, the police officers, the increased charges against the police officers? Is that going to cause the demonstration to subside? Is there, are there some other specific things that need to happen that for these demonstrations to move into some other form, to move into a, a reform form or some, something else? I'm just, I'm just puzzled as to where we go next. I'm going to answer that question. But first, I just want to back up what Jamel was saying with this study that jumped out at me um, from Monmouth University this week, showing that 57 percent of Americans believe police are more likely to use excessive force against black people. And what's striking about Who that is 43 percent. Well, I know. People? I know. But like, what the hell is that? OK, but in 2016, only 34 percent of people said this. So I think that's the kind of movement you're talking about. And it's been really interesting to me to watch how racially diverse these protests are. And I think young white people feel a sense of obligation and they kind of get it in a way that they didn't um, four or five or three years ago. And that's because of the success of Black Lives Matter. Like those lessons have been absorbed by a bigger part of the country because of the work of all of those activists. So <clears throat> let me just interject. Yes. CBS came out with a poll Thursday morning after the shooting in Charleston at Mother Emanuel Church. Fifty six percent of the country said uh, a lot of progress had been made um, for African-Americans in America. That number is 38 percent today. So more white people get it. That's a good thing. You know, in answer to your question, David, so in when these protests started last week and there was more looting and rioting than we're currently seeing, I was really worried about this because usually organizers who are in charge think really hard about how to declare victory, how you get to a feeling of relief and catharsis from all this incredible energy that is bubbling up. And it seemed like with these protests that they were incredibly organic. I mean, in New Haven, the protest was called by someone anonymously. And then luckily, some Black Lives Matter movement leaders showed up to take it over. So I worried that it was all going to be kind of like this inchoate stew with too much frustration. But I actually think that something really amazing is happening, which is like, yes, statues coming down. In addition to the one of Robert E. Lee, Frank Rizzo's statue came down in the middle of the night in Philadelphia. You know, for me growing up in Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo was the scourge of the city. I can't believe we had a statue of him until this week, but it's gone. And it is really important both that all four officers were charged in George Floyd's unconscionable death and that the charges were raised for Officer Chauvin, um, the main perpetrator, to second-degree murder. But what's so much more... What's so much bigger about this to me is a real discussion of the role of the police in communities and the idea that I keep seeing fund the community, not the police. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is some, like dumb notion that we don't need the police because every community needs good policing. It's the idea that there are so many problems that go into the bucket of law enforcement in America that should not be solved by the cops, can't really be solved by them, and should not be criminalized. When you think about the fact that more than 80% of charges, and that's not arrests, just charges, are misdemeanors, and so many of those offenses really have to do with underlying issues of mental health problems and substance abuse and all these things that the cops are not trained to do. They're not the right people. We've been incredibly unimaginative in most of the country in thinking 
about who our first responders are. There are some experiments going on now in places like Eugene, Oregon and Austin, Texas, of having 911 lines where you can get triage to someone who is good at mediation or has social work skills. And there are really, there's so much fruitful work to be done there in thinking about how you improve public safety by improving the well-being of a community and funding organizations and people inside communities who know how they work and don't feel like this hostile and alien presence. And I feel like the organizers and thinkers behind this are getting really good at making those concrete proposals. So let me give one more example of that. There was this amazing, in my view, letter this week where more than 100 former and current de Blasio employees denounced the mayor for what I think has been his craven response. The NYPD has been way over the top, and de Blasio has not taken them on in the same way that he has failed to throughout his administration. And these employees are pointing out that there has been more than a billion dollars added to the budget of the NYPD since de Blasio came into office. They want that one billion taken out of the police department budget and reinvested in communities. So that's the kind of example that um, seems important here. Yeah, I I think I... Because I think I think the protests are now large enough and broad enough that there's two tracks happening. There is this one that involves or is increasingly involving um, concrete ask, as Emily describes, and that has concrete responses or even symbolic ones that still matter. Like, you know, as previously mentioned in Richmond, the Robert E. Lee statue coming down in Birmingham, a Confederate statue coming down. So there's that. But then, and, and this relates to what's happening in, in D.C. in particular, the president's decision, Barr's, Bill Barr's decision, or whomever's decision it was, to uh, remove protesters in Lafayette Square with uh, tear gas or smoke gas for the photo op seems to have kind of escalated those protests into almost something of a protest over the, legitim- over the legitimacy of Trump himself. That that was the the administration or the White House kind of making a statement about its view of dissent. And then when protesters the next day responded with an even larger demonstration, the administration kind of stood down. And it's in the wake of that that you've seen figures on the right and in the center coming explicitly out or voicing their opposition to the president or to that display of repression, voicing their support for the protesters. So obviously, uh, uh, former President Bush and Laura Bush came out with the statement. You have James Madison's statement. You have a group of Bush 43 alums starting a super PAC. And I think all of these things flow out of what happened on Monday, or was that Sunday? I, I have no idea how days work anymore at the time. <laughs> Time doesn't matter anymore. Um, at some point in the recent past, it <laughs> happened. And I think that set of protest is, yeah, the best way I can describe it is the legitimacy crisis. And I think yeah. there's an extent to which the protests against the police are also a legitimacy crisis for the police. But I think we've, we're seeing something much more acute happening in Washington um, and in the protests there, which I don't know how that resolves, right? Like that, that that's the kind of thing where the... <laughs> kind of really only goes two ways at a certain point, either more repression or the regime just leaves. Picking up on what Jamel said, uh, and then I want to ask a question of all of you. I mean, 
what's striking about the when the president walked over to St. John's Church on Tuesday night was not just the event itself, but it has to be seen in comparison to the relatively parsimonious uh, response he had to the overall cry of agony that you see in all of the protests. You know, so we know what it looks like when a president of any kind wants to take emergency action because they feel something is so valuable and so at risk. And as the representative of a country that's founded on equality and the single representative elected by the country, he could have decided to put all of that that symbolism and all of that power of the office into a response to what was at the heart of the protests and chose not to and instead devoted the full arsenal of his response to this photo op, um, literally sweeping away the protesters and their concerns, which included basically asking not to be swept away this time, uh, finally, after so many similar incidents. The Back to, the, to David's question, so the question I, I was wondering is whether, obviously there are a series of reforms to the police, but in terms of symbolism, there was a, a piece in um, in Vox by uh, German Lopez who talked to a bunch of criminal justice experts, and the number one issue in terms of what reform was required was that the police need to apologize for centuries of abuse. And I wonder, that's a relatively quick thing that could happen that also sets the expectations for what's to come. Admitting that there is systemic racism in the culture, which is what George W. Bush wrote in his response to Floyd's killing, also seems to be kind of a threshold issue. And I wonder what, if any of you think about the a, is there a threshold symbolic response that is the precursor to all of the systemic change that's needed? I mean, I, I think there's this, I think it's become incredibly dangerous that the police have effectively become an ally of one party, of the president's party. And rather than being existing as neutral arbiters or at least trying to be neutral arbiters, the fact that they take an explicitly political position and effectively act as counter protesters at this movement is is so poisonous and dangerous. And uh, we have the these incredible data that we've talked about, I think, before that police don't live in the cities they police. Police don't feel attached to the cities they police. And this inability of white police in particular to treat black protesters the way they would treat white protesters, which comes out of the sense of difference and disagreement and alienation. And so there's a huge cultural divide, emotional divide, literal physical divide, uh, political partisan divide. It is vast. It is a just a vast, vast divide. And I, I mean, I think the idea of an apology is, is a that's a really nice idea. It makes a lot of sense. It is the there's so many other fixes that are also going to happen have to happen to police departments before the real change is going to come though and i just don't think they're willing i just don't think i think there are certainly are departments that would be willing to issue an apology i just don't think that the rank and file police in most cities are going to be like yes i'm sorry for doing my job it wouldn't be i I think that would be quite grudging but maybe i'm maybe i'm being cynical Uh, so when I so when I think about like what can what what could police do as sort of like a a low cost gesture to show protesters that they are um, are on the same page or trying to get on the same page, the thing that comes to mind is that police departments, you know, police commissioners, you know, the leadership can order can sort of order their officers to not use 
militarized gear, right? Sort of take off, take away the shields, take off the helmets, put the trucks away, just show up in like regular uniforms and show that you're not trying to escalate things. And that's also something that, right, that civilian leadership can also say, I want to see this happen. I think the problem comes, and this gets to what um, David's saying, is that I'm not, I, I'm not sure rank and file police would see those calls as legitimate, um, uh, maybe more so if it came from police leadership, but certainly not if it came from elected officials. And I think one of the dynamics happening here, and this ties into the history of policing, is that up until relatively recently in the history of American policing, police were really only responsible to a white public, right? That the people who voted, um, the people whose votes mattered, the elected officials were mostly responding to white publics in cities and suburbs, and the police themselves were drawn from those publics. And there was no sort of incongruency between what the police were largely being tasked to do, which is control non-white groups within cities and who they were responding to, which is the people who wanted that control. But since like, you know, 1965, um, since 1968, obviously the polity that's been demanding more police accountability is much more diverse. And it includes many of the people who are formerly under the thumb of that police control. And the elected officials are representing those people. And for police officers, I think that there is a sense that those elected officials are not legitimate in the same way, precisely because they are representing people who are viewed as not as as be, as needing to be under the thumb of control. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, this is an idea I feel like I got I got articulate better in writing, but it's basically that like the police have a sense of who is who is legitimate political authority, and it's at cross purposes with what the political authority is. And I think an example of this is how a lot of police unions were like virulently anti-Obama, called him, said he was fighting a war on cops, said he was, um, said Obama was uh, disrespectful of law enforcement, which is just sort of not completely at odds with what reality was. But what Obama was trying to do, what the Obama Justice Department was trying to do was put a measure of federal accountability on local police departments. And those police departments simply did not see that as legitimate, not a thing that Obama had the right to do, regardless of um, of his position. Those same unions are obviously super pro-Trump. And maybe some of this is just sort of like ordinary partisanship, and that certainly plays a part. But I don't think you can separate it from, the, from who Obama represented, who he was and who he represented, and who Trump is and who he represents. That there's also this sense that those people can't tell us what to do, but these people can. Hey, GapFest listeners, as always, we have a Slate Plus bonus segment for you today. And we're going to talk about Jim Mattis's astonishing letter, astonishing renunciation of President Trump that came out in The Atlantic on Wednesday. John, of course, has spent a lot of time with Mattis over the years, has deep thoughts about him, and we're going to talk about whether the former defense secretary's comments now will make a difference to how we see Trump or how the voters see Trump. Please go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member of Slate Plus today. It's a really valuable thing you can do if you do want to support Slate and its journalism and you're in a position to support it, joining Slate Plus is very helpful. It's been hard for Slate given the 
general economic decline and the decline in the advertising market. And Slate Plus is a critical way that Slate loyal readers and listeners can show their support. So please consider joining if you can. And you can do that by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It is very hard. I find it very hard to talk about President Trump at this moment because his weakness and his cruelty are so hard to bear witness to. He has behaved so strangely during this Floyd crisis and has, as always, just seen it through his own narcissistic lens. Uh, the attack on the protesters that foretold his bizarre Bible photo op where he looked like a man who had never held a book before, much less held a Bible before, much less even ha- ever had his photograph taken. It was such a strange thing that he did. The push that he seems to be making to deploy U.S. active duty troops into the streets to, quote, dominate the battle space, as his defense secretary said, his complete inability to say anything to calm the country. And so, John, are we now in an authoritarian dictatorship? Is this what an authoritarian dictatorship's look like we've like drifted far enough down the line that that's where we are we have a a president a president his unelected daughter making a decision to a bizarre photo op you have the minions scurrying to to clear the city of of unsightly protesters and use violence against their own citizens the attorney general who represents the grand tradition of law in the nation moving to do this the 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 defense secretary and the chair of the joint chiefs of staff, the top echelon of the military, giving their imprimatur, walking right. with them through this phalanx of, right. of uh, masked secret service agents. Like this feels not like an America I, I thought I lived in. Right. And the <clears throat> troops posted on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and the uh, heavily um, armed um, troops in front of various buildings that refuse to say where they've come from, which goes back to to Jamel's point about about the militarization um, and the bristling gear that is um, brought out into the streets. You know, one of the things is just slightly tangentially, but James Mattis is on my mind. Is um, you know what they decided in the surge was it turns out when you come rolling in with all that militarized gear you turn the population against you. So take off the gear, take off the sunglasses, the flak jackets and all that, and just walk through the streets and you develop a relationship with the cities. And um, that seems to be, you know, the uh, would work here as well. Um, I, you know, we're not all the way, we're not only there yet. And in fact, some of the revulsion from not just James Mattis, but Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the actions on Tuesday night, uh, show, I keep saying Tuesday, I mean Monday, show, you, you know, there is resistance um, to what was done. And in fact, the Secretary of Defense um, is trying to walk slash run away from both the battle space comment and um, and what the president seems to be doing. Now, on the other hand, it seems that Senator Tom Cotton in his New York Times op-ed calling for sending in the troops seems to be auditioning for Esper's job. Um, so you could imagine Esper getting bounced and someone being put in who um, who agreed with the president. I don't think we're there. Um, I don't think we're there just yet. But we're like a step away and it feels sort of like just theater because so much about Trump has that spectacle feeling where you sort of feel like he's play acting at being a tin pot dictator. At the same time, I feel like it's really important to take seriously how close we're coming and 
for these officials, not just former Trump officials and military, but current military to say, no, like we took a swore an oath to protect the American people and the Constitution. We are we are not a partisan um, operation. And I think we're starting to see that from the military, in part because the military is not the police. The military is a much more bipartisan institution that's 40% people of color. And I think there's a recognition from its leadership that it can't afford to be aligned with this incredibly divisive president. But to have all those troops in Washington refusing to identify themselves, to have people gassed out of Lafayette Square for that bizarre photo op, like that should not be the America that we want to live in. And it's only by saying that really clearly that um, we make sure it doesn't happen. I want to co-sign the point about the military as distinct from the police and as distinct from what appears to be sort of prison riot control and see uh, customs and border patrol who are also in D.C. I think the people who are identifying themselves aren't actually in the military, but part of the larger federal paramilitary apparatus, which is sort of like a whole. I mean, in, in addition to everything else this is raising, I think this is raising serious questions about do we want the federal government to have, you know, uh, tens of thousands of guys uh, without military discipline uh, in paramilitary gear, um, just like present around. I think it, I think it, it appears to be not a good idea. Um, but the military, I think it, I think you're right. I believe that precisely because the military is substantially more diverse. That it's one of the most integrated institutions in American life. I, I, I may have mentioned this before. My parents uh, both did 20 plus years in the Navy. I grew up more or less on Navy, Navy bases. And my experience as being a Navy brat is one of being in uh, extremely diverse environments my entire childhood. And um, on just a level of politics, military officials, if they were to agree with the plan to send troops in to, uh, in Cotton's words, use overwhelming force against protesters, I don't think they could necessarily count on discipline from troops. Because in, in many cases, this would be people going into their own communities or communities like their community, like the ones they grew up in, using that force. And so I think military leaders are very much aware, um, as you suggested, Emily, that this is, uh, this is fraught. So even setting aside sort of uh, uh, questions of lawful orders and constitutional authority and all these things, it is just uncertain of what you'll get if you force, I think it's something like 23% African-American institution to act against a bunch of African-American protesters. The other, the other piece of it is I, I can understand where this came from three days ago when you do – there was a lot of uh, looting. There was – a lot of fires there was a, a the the protests themselves had a kind of a real deep edge of of tension the police were acting in great numbers with impunity and with violence um and you had people on the edge of the protesters protests causing mayhem and 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 vandalism on the sides my sense of the protests over the last couple of days is that they are extremely like this is First Amendment speech at the highest order. These are people, you know, t taking to the streets, gathering, speaking in a enti almost entirely peaceful way. They're disrupting society because they're blocking roads and they're 
causing people to to you know not be able to get around in, in ways they might want to get around. But the but the the idea that you would call out the military to roust people who are engaged in what is fundamental First Amendment activity, like at the really the highest order, is don't you think the, so? Terrible. But don't you think this is what President Trump fears the most? Like the looters and the rioters, he can try to make some political hay from the sustained peaceful protest, you know, outside the White House, outside the Trump Hotel, right. With this kind of support and so many people and such strong poll numbers supporting it, like that is a real threat to his presidency, to his whole worldview. But I don't think you can get away with sicking military forces on that in a way you can get when when the footage. I think the public would not allow that in the way they would allow it if there's if most of the footage is of looters and arson well part of the deployment is to self is to reinforce is to define all protesters as as um although in his in his remarks he has drawn a distinction but nevertheless actions are a lot more powerful than words and it it lumps all of them together thereby delegitimizing the peaceful part of the protests um if they're all defined as looters but i think the 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 bias is obviously to protect the first amendment and it's and the the it's such an over response to so it's not just being sufficiently careful of first amendment rights but the risk of overreacting is obviously a huge problem here the military is not really trained for this <laughs> and then finally it seems to repeat a portion of what the underlying protesters are having issue with, which is the militarized response um, to certain communities um, and the excessive militarization, not the excessive militarization, but the excessive kind of law and order, total crackdown mindset that informs a lot of the policies uh, or informs the structure that people are protesting against. Can I make a, one small point about this? Was I, I actually don't think it would be that bad for the frontline troops the frontline people engaging with protesters to be National Guard. I think that would be better than the National Guard is different. The National no, no, I know. Guard, I understand. Right? Like, no, I understand. Go ahead. But I think explain that because that's actually helpful. Yeah. And I, I had to read all about the National Guard because I did not really know what the National Guard was. Yeah. Well, I think if your cho- your choices are, if you think about the, who, who could engage with protesters on the front lines, there are local cops, there's National Guard who are you know, functioning w- under the command of uh, the governor of the state for the most part uh, and under mo- these circumstances and are sort of military, but they're not cops. They're not cops. Then there's active U.S. military. And then there's a set of tr- Trumpy paramilitaries of Border Patrol and so forth that we're seeing in D.C. And the Bureau of Prisons riot yeah. folks. And, and of all of those, I think the folks I think should be the who would be most likely to be best to engage with the protesters are in fact national guard who aren't like they're, they, they're they don't have the animus that the cops clearly have. And it just feels like they will lower the temperature. And whereas the paramilitary Trump people are who the fuck knows what they're going to do. And active duty U S forces should not be called to do this because this is absolutely not their job. So I don't think in principle, it's actually unacceptable to use active duty military for the sake of domestic unrest. It's been done before, but the context in which it's been done has usually been to defend the constitutional rights of the people Civil rights. Facing, the pro- facing the unrest, right? And so like sitting in the 101st Airborne to help desegregate a school um, is a, using the military to enforce a Supreme Court ruling to defend constitutional rights. 
And so I, I think part of the issue, I mean, not part of the issue, the issue in this situation is that calls for the military to be used are explicitly for the suppression of protests. And that's when you get sort of like into the dicey, you can't do this territory. And I agree with you, David, that the National Guard probably would be a better uh, would be better to have at the front lines precisely because they are at some remove. And if a governor said to themselves, I also want, you know, active duty troops to be available for the sake of protecting protesters. I mean, honestly, if, if some uh, mayor said, I want to have troops to protect my citizens from the cops, I think that'd be acceptable because it's clear that local police are, you know, for lack of a better term, like wilding out on protests. Not to minimize the misconduct by the police, I would like to keep the military's role as a total last resort in American life, just because of the yeah. international examples we have of what happens when their power is unleashed, who really controls them, how do we put that genie back into the bottle? Plus the scale of ex- escalation seems like it could go just so horribly wrong once you get the military involved. Yes. Sideways. John, we're about 150 days out from the election, and one of the things that that President Obama has certainly emphasized, and that uh, other other folks on the left have emphasized, which is that this protest movement uh, should also be part of a broader electoral movement. That it sh- we should focus on what we how we can hold elected officials accountable and and elect officials who will represent our interests better than perhaps the ones we have now. Um, at the same time, and I think that polling data suggests that President Trump is in serious trouble in a lot of places, that his numbers are going way down. It's, there was a story in the New York Times today that that his uh, campaign is quite anxious and has put money into states, that, to Ohio and Arizona, states that they, I think, thought were pretty safe. But what if we have an election that a government that works to undermine the legitimacy of the election and a president who might not accept it, a party that might not go along with that, a military that might have at that point been dragged along to 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 do service to that. Do you feel there's any danger of that or am I being hyperbolic? Well, I mean, it's hard in it's hard in the wake of the president's photo op at St. John's to um, take the normal posture of um you know the restraints will will kick in because that was again it was not only a bizarre in its by itself but also by in comparison to what could have been done by a president in response to in solidarity with or at least in acknowledgement of the protesters and their message so and we have we certainly have the president's um response to um you know in 2016 he was for months talking about rigged elections and trying to sow doubt and raise questions. I mean, it depends on the size of the loss. So in the scenario you've sketched is he, he chooses, uh, you know, not to leave office or comes up with some pretext or something. I mean, it depends if he loses by a small amount and there's some evidence doesn't matter. There is the amount is small enough that the, that the conspiracy theory, gets enough adherence, sure, you could be in a wobbly state. But if he um, gets trounced, I think um, that's harder to imagine. The more immediate and interesting question to me is, how does this sort, because you have a presidential response to two things, which is uh, a moment of national crisis uh, in relations with not just community and the police, but the overall 
um, disparities in the way that COVID has hit communities of color, the overall disparities that will be significantly exacerbated by and are being significantly exacerbated by the economic uh, devastation as a result of COVID-19, and the feeling that the administration is overmatched in responding to all of those, not not the president, just the president, but the administration is overmatched by events. And then when you look at individually, um, you know, voters would trust Biden far more to handle those kinds of issues, particularly on the issue of race, you know, how that then plays out um, in the election and provides opportunities or challenges, opportunities for Biden, challenges for Trump. Jamel, you, let's, you, you, you're our guest. Take, do you want to take any last words you want to leave us with? I agree with John um, entirely there. I, I think, especially on the point that ultimately what I think, whether the election, um, whether Trump will accept the results of the election will depend 100% on, um, if he loses, that is, on the scale of that loss. Because of how fractured our election system is, there are so many opportunities for mischief. There are so many ways to gum up the works. There are so many ways to not even, you know, this isn't a question of like overturning results or ignoring results even, but just contesting results such to create a sense that the process wasn't legitimate. Yeah, and disenfranchising um, people. But, right. But if on November 3rd, on election night, even without counting absentee or mail-in ballots, it is evident that Trump has lost by five points or six points or seven points. There's just no space for contestation. Uh, a one-point loss on election night, sure. Um, it's tied on election night. We have to wait to count for counting ballots. It's kind of like the nightmare scenario. But if it's clear on election night that he's lost and it's a decisive loss, then more importantly than whether Trump does anything, I don't think the Republican Party does anything, right? I don't think Republican lawmakers stand with Trump if he wants to contest things in that scenario. And that's kind of like that. That's ultimately, I think, the the question, at what point does the Republican Party stand with or break from Trump? Because it's in those moments when there are, is a little bit of faltering among Republicans that Trump sees his worst sort of performance with the public at large. And a big loss doesn't leave room for uh, Republican lawmakers to say, maybe Trump has the right idea about this election. Jamel Bowie is a columnist with the New York Times. Jamel, thanks for joining us. From your home in Charlottesville, yes. Virginia, by the way. I Thank you for that. having me. Yep. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. 
Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Hey, so there's a pandemic. Do you remember that, Emily Bazelon? There's yes, a pandemic going I do. on. I have 16, not 16 states have shown recent increases in case loads. At the same time, I don't think anyone who's been anywhere recently in an American city would deny that Americans, at least in cities, seem to be kind of over it. There is much less of the tight control and vast social distancing that we saw a month ago that has relaxed. Or maybe you could say that that has slumped. Yet at the same time, the disease exists. The epidemic exists. Transmission continues. The jobs are gone the patrons at restaurants are not back. The flights are not flying. The bus passengers are not getting on the bus. Camps so, in some states are not open, nor are some summer programs. That's become a real divide among different places in the country. Yeah, and yet also the fundamentals are unchanged. There is no treatment that is effective. There is no vaccine. There is no real testing. There's no real contact tracing. 
There is no coherent policy at a federal level. So where are we, Emily, as summer descends upon us? I think we're in a waiting period. We did a lot to mitigate and suppress the virus. So the numbers came down. Now they're ticking up in some places. And I think there's a sense of fatigue about all the vigilance that it took to bring those numbers down. And then the way this virus works, there's a lag time for it to start up again. I also think that as a result of the protests, which have featured a lot of masks and some social distancing, but also like a ton of people congregating in the same place. And I think because of that, we're going to have another round of political polarization if the virus ticks back up in places where there has been a lot of protesting. It's going to be conservatives saying, hey, you blamed us. You said we couldn't get out and protest and we couldn't have our swim parties. And now look at you guys. But won't the, if the numbers do tick up, won't the argument be, see, this is why we told you not to go have your summer parties, because even when you're outdoors, you still get it. I mean, what we're having in the onset of summer, I mean, we're having it first with the marches, but then with summer is a test about seasonal variation and whether being outside and the warmer temperatures will change the way the virus is transmitted. Of course, that's happening at the same time that we've all still, even if people are returning to the streets, they are in some some places still keeping their distance and people are still wearing masks. Although I was, was traveling for work this weekend, it's certainly clear that the further south you go, the more relaxed people are about masks and social distancing. So yeah, John, I think you're right. But I have noticed that some public health specialists who were very condemning of the previous rounds of protests are much more welcoming and accepting of these. And you know, there's a reason for that. They think that like, this is really important that people's lives are on the line in a way that they didn't think when people were protesting. But I still think if you were a protester, if you felt like, some suspicion that the government had just gone too far and that these epidemiologists were telling you not to do all kinds of things that were dear to you, like visit your loved ones in the hospital if they were dying, this is going to be hard to take, this kind of acceptance of mass congregating. Absolutely. I mean, sure. it totally- yeah, I mean, it's it is it's a real hard hypocrisy for people to have to live with. And I think we, you know, obviously we all want to hope that the mass congregating outside does not lead to an uptick in disease because that means it's, you know, it's less transmissible and it just means fewer people will be infected with less likelihood of a second spike, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't, you know, that, that people who, whose protests were shouted down or were, were morally condemned a month ago shouldn't be really genuinely miffed about what's happening now. The sanctimony, the well, sanctimony about these protests around COVID stuff, I think is a mistake. It was first of all, uh, I mean, there are plenty of epidemiologists who are saying, oh, gosh, this is going to create a spike. And public health officials who are saying anybody who went to a march should go get tested because these are going to be super spreader events. So there are plenty of people who are still sounding the warning. Secondly, they're happening in different times. So when the first round of behavioral restrictions were put in place, epidemiologists and public health officials were still trying to get their hands on how the virus was spread, how it worked what the benefits of masks were, so forth and so on. It was also different weather conditions. So there may, in fact, we might find some months later when we're able to walk the cat back on all of this, that those initial efforts were too severe, um, but they were also initial efforts in situations where hospitals were trying to stay alive. The abilities to treat 
are now, at least based on the conversations I had with infectious disease people this week, the treatments, you know, you're, you're being sent home faster if you're at a certain level. They're getting better at learning how to treat it, which means um, we're just at a different place today than we were three months ago. I, I mean, I think there's some element of that we certainly have learned. But there was an interesting piece in the New York Times just a few days ago that we're six months in, and here are all the things we still don't know. We still don't really know what the transmission patterns are. I think people are assuming they're acting as though it's safer to be outside. Uh, surfaces aren't that dangerous. Um, and, and you know, it's the weather may be helping. But, like, the, in terms of certainty, we're not that much further along than we were a month ago. Those anti-lockdown protests were not, they were not March 1st. They were, they were a month ago. And they were in warmer places sometimes. And there was an awful lot of really, really uh, sanctimonious criticism of that. And I, I just think people should be a bit humble, a bit humble about saying that what's happening now is okay, too. It's just, we just don't well, know. But, but how many people are really saying what's happening now is okay? So there's a letter that more than a thousand epidemiologists and doctors and social workers and medical students and other health experts have signed that support the protest um, because of its importance despite the pandemic. Well, there you go. Um, John, I want to turn um, to some of the economic questions because there is this there's a shift in, I think, the way people are feeling about the disease and in the, and the urgency with which they're they're facing the epidemic. But the the catastrophe, the economic disaster remains for the country. We have another one point six million. I think people filed for unemployment this week. The total number of people who filed is in the 40 mid 40 millions now. PPP money is starting to run out for those organizations, those businesses that applied for money to tide them over through this emergency. People's $1,200 stimulus checks are being, are probably spent by now in many cases. Uh, we are in an economic hole that we've never been in before. Do you get any sense that the national government, besides the Fed, is dealing with that or is facing that with the seriousness they need to face it? No, not not anything close to the seriousness with which they need to face it, because we're not just talking about measures necessary to kind of get the economy moving again, which would be all of the things you'd have to do um, in terms of tracing and in terms of testing and in terms of all those things. But secondarily, there's not the level of focus on all the long-term challenges that are a result of this. I mean, when you think about you know, schools are going to reopen. Many schools won't. State schools are going to take a bigger hit. Those state schools are the engine for getting people into the avenues of opportunity that are supposed to be a part of the American dream. And their funding has already been slashed over the last several years since the, the Great Recession. It's going to be devastated even more as a result of this. And that's a long-term economic issue about the next generation of economic earners. I think one thing that is possibly a good sign is you know, there are um, lots and lots of different experiments going on out there about how organizations reopen and what the key is. Uh, masks work. We know that. We know that social distancing works. I don't know, you know, how that solves plane travel of the kind we used to do. There was a report in Lancet this week that sort of affirmed a lot of the, the data about masks and also about distancing. And so as institutions start to, to succeed and people don't get infected, 
then everybody else can go to school on what they did. I just did. add one thing to that. There was a paper months ago that said that or suggested strongly that masks did not work, which has actually been retracted. I think that's really important. Like we almost never go back and look at the bad predictions and the bad research. And I just want to put a pin on that. And also, along with plane travel, we got to start thinking about buses and trains, which, of course, are the things that most people use every day to get to work and to move around. Um, that still seems kind of mysterious to me how we're going to figure that out. But well, most people use their car. So, Well, I take trains actually, and subways. So to okay, me, public but, transportation is important. But and there are pu- other people in the world who use buses. Public transportation is, well, is actually a tiny fraction of but transportation. It, but it is a place where there's then, lots of transmission, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, and also the communities that have been hardest hit in cities by COVID-19, I'm guessing are probably more bus and train riders than um, commute into the city and their car drivers. Yeah, not everybody has a car, David Plotz. Speaking of bad early science, uh, Emily, the there was also news this week that the drug that President Trump touted took hydroxychloroquine has now been completely uh, disavowed, essentially, that it was it has had earlier been shown to have showed no beneficial effects on people who actually had COVID-19 and is now shown to have had no preventative benefits in a study. Basically, it's no different than taking a vitamin or a placebo. Except that guess, it has all these um, wacko side effects. <laughs> Right, right. No, but I meant just in the narrow question of whether. Uh, yet we wasted a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of distraction on this drug. And that's a shame. And it's not that we shouldn't, we should expect there to be lots of failures. I think there's no, there's no shame in having failures. And there's no shame in even people getting excited about drugs that turn out to be failures. The, the shame is that the president hyped it up so much. There was so much emphasis in the administration that it really, for some period of weeks, it put way disproportionate attention on this this drug and the study of this drug, which just delayed the study of the 10 other drugs that might be effective uh, that could have been studied during that time. So that's the, the and problem. And meanwhile, we still don't have nationally effective testing and contact tracing, which we could have been thinking and talking about during that time that we wasted. Hmm. 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 Um, hmm. One, one just quick thing. One just quick thing about, you're exactly right, David, you know, um, I mean, it's fine for for you want presidents to push experimentation and action and all that, but disproportionate and unfounded is not the way to go. Emily, I, let's close this topic with a with a question that I'm interested in. So, given that the fundamentals are unchanged, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a therapy. Uh, we have hope that the weather and um, sort of masking behavior and so forth will reduce transmission, but we don't have certainty about that. That is combined with the fact that people do feel sort of exhausted, clearly, and are just sick of it all. Is it okay that we've moved from anxious risk elimination mode into kind of like uh, risk reduction mode? Is that okay? I mean, personally, I was never someone who was wiping off my packages. Seems like we don't have to worry about pets transmitting the virus, which is helpful. You know, I'm not going to go to a big event for a long time. Like, I, th- I guess I feel like everybody in mo- many people in their hearts have a certain number of like 
a certain amount of license they're giving themselves, like a certain amount of chits to spend on some risk. And I hope that we think of that as quite limited risk. But I feel like we're each kind of making a new set of bargains. And so I've been having a lot of conversations with friends, like, you know, we'll invite two people over to sit in our backyard. They'll show up with masks. They'll kind of look at us like, do we need to keep these masks on? And like in my house, no, we are willing to let you take your mask off if you're sitting more than six feet away from us and each other or whoever, and you're in the backyard. And that seems to be okay. But I live in a place where while New Haven has been quite hard hit by coronavirus, my neighborhood much less hit because of residential segregation and socioeconomic discrimination or socioeconomic segregation. So I maybe um, I, I think there's like a lot of um, privilege and luck that goes along with this. And that's actually quite devastating. The notion that you're safer just because like you live in a nicer, more affluent part of town or part of the country. Um, I, I really feel just such dismay about that part of um, of the way pan- viruses work. Like they, you know, this is has been part of their history for centuries and it's terrible. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a June beverage with all the many Dickersons, John, what are you going to be chattering about with them? If they're still talking to me, um, I'm going to talk to them about um, uh, my colleague Emily Bazelon's piece on what college will look like in the fall, which is something I'm working on, too. But it's a great conversation that she did um, that's in The Times. um, And what's great is it has all the different it has lots and lots of different angles on this story, which are um, which are important. And we talked about it on this show, but um, there's a lot more to it. Um, and it touches on every different part of our um, culture, not just, you know, who goes to school and not. So anyway, I recommend it. Well, thank you, John Dickerson. That was very nice of you. Emily Bazelon, what is your chatter? And are you going to praise either me or John in it? No, I'm not <laughs> going to praise either of you. Someday I might do that, but not today. I want to recommend a book called A River of Stars by Vanessa Hua. I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Vanessa Hua. It's a really lovely, rollicking novel about immigration and the challenges of moving to this country, in particular um, to Chinatown in San Francisco. I think I can say that without giving away too much. It has a just super memorable main character. I really loved it. So if you're looking for it's it's I've been having trouble getting absorbed into novels, which is like one of my favorite things in the world is to be really immersed in a novel. And I tried a few books this summer that I just can't get myself to concentrate on because of the level of distraction, dismay that so many of us are consumed by. But this book broke through. Uh, I really enjoyed it. A River of Stars by Vanessa Hua. H-U-A. My chatter, I'll mention a novel that's broke through for me, which is that I'm reading the uh, the new Hunger Games prequel by Suzanne Collins, which uh, which I don't, I can't remember the title of. It's uh, Songbirds and Snakes or something. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I think. I, If you were a fan of the Hunger Games series, I think this book is really brilliant about political structures and it's a great world building. And it's a fascinating picture into the world that exists that becomes the world of the Hunger Games is that when we when we catch up to it with the, the the main series. So I strongly recommend it. I also want to point out an amazing piece by Anne Applebaum. Oh my God, totally. 
in the Atlantic. So the Anne, who has been on the show before, who's a brilliant uh, political journalist and thinker and the kind of best writer on totalitarianism and how totalitarianism happens and on communism, post-World War II communism, has written an article for The Atlantic, Why Have Republican Leaders Abandoned Their Principles in Support of an Immoral and Dangerous President? History Will Judge the Complicit. And it's a tries to understand why somebody like Lindsey Graham, who has lived a, a principled life up until the Trump presidency, would would become such a such a lackey for such a vile person and why would Graham abandon principles he believed in and why would Mitt Romney not and it's it's just a fascinating look at what is what are the human motivations the structural motivations the economic motivations the psychological motivations that cause people to uh, to work with governments and human beings they know to be villainous what are the rationalizations that we all make and it's a really sobering depressing story and it makes and you realize patient my god oh, i mean it closed before the current um wave of unrest and it just it's so incisive about exactly what is at the top of the mind at least for me right now it does always remind me i i this is something i really try to tell myself and and remind myself all the time i'm not a person of tremendous moral courage i'm not kidding myself i'm a selfish person who wants to get ahead in the world and you sort of think like there, but for the grace of God, it's very, very, very hard to resist when people around you have made decisions to compromise morally, to work with it, work with villainy. It's very hard to resist it. And almost no one does. And that's why structures that prevent villainy, that's why structures that put in safeguards against villainy, institutions, structures, laws, rules, non-partisan systems are so important because they prevent the 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 tendency for all of us to go along with whatever the power structure is uh from from it just sort of holds us back from becoming nazis and because a lot of us won't a lot of us won't be held back one of the things i like too about this piece is Anne does a kind of taxonomy of the reasons why people become complicit and some of them are super soft, like especially in America today, it's much more about, you know, worrying about social approbation or not getting invited to the right dinner parties than it is about being thrown in jail. So it's hard, but it's hard partly because of our very um, weak human psychologies. You know, um, I was talking to um, someone recently about whether and how you would change the study of history. And they argued that, um, or we sort of came to in this conversation a question or thinking about whether it's interesting to study the periods in history where progress dropped. So obviously Reconstruction, you know, what happened um, after the Civil Rights Movement, where in America things went awry and why and what allowed the slow accretion to take place. And which seems like, I haven't read this article, though I saw it, seems like what she's talking about. And Jefferson at the very beginning said, it wasn't just that an informed citizenry was important. He said that the most important thing to study was these failures of the past, because only then could you see them coming and understand just the human behaviors that uh, that David was articulating earlier. Listeners, you have been a source of great chatters for us all the time. You've been tweeting to us at Slate Gabfest works of culture 
things that you've seen, articles you've read, books you've read that you find worthy of discussion at your virtual cocktail parties. And this week's listener chatter comes from David Foreman. And it was actually just, I think, an email directly to me. So thanks, David Foreman. And it's a video from Aeon, A-E-O-N, which is a great science magazine or science history, I suppose, publication. And it's a video from the early 1930s taken at the top of the Chrysler building. And it's a series of conversations with the men who are working on finishing the Chrysler building. So there, there's an one fantastic scene where they're, you know, those iconic uh, kind of eagle, eagle uh, gargoyles almost that stick out from the top of the Chrysler building where they're hammering one of those on and trying to get the, the, the thing to fit. And then you see them just kind of hang, climbing out on these steel beams a thousand feet above the street, just talking about what it's like to work there. Um, it's amazing. It's delightful. They're just monkeying about, making jokes about how high up they are, talking about what unions are up there. They all have these New York accents that are you don't even hear anymore. I mean, there are probably like six people left who have New York accents like this, but they're just just such intense, thick, vivid, uh, old-timey New York accents. It's it's great. John, I watched this and, and was thinking of you. You should watch it. You will love it. It's your kind of thing. I know. I'd lo- I, I'm like, I'm wanting to go watch it right now. Um, it reminds me of that, that famous photograph of, uh, of the men taking their lunch break on a girder. That is our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the GabFest. You'll get new episodes the second they're published. We are produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGapFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Don't forget our live show. Please join us for our live show next week, June 10th. We're going to be live. You can go to slate.com slash live for more info. We're going to do a whole show. Uh, You're going to be able to see us vividly, and we're going to talk about the week's news, and we are going to give a special segment to John's magnificent new book. So please join us for our first quote-unquote live show of the pandemic next Wednesday, June 10th. Slate.com slash live for more info. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Um, We're going to talk now about Jim Mattis. Uh, we're not going to call him Mad Dog Mattis, which is what President Trump likes to call him, but he doesn't like to be called that. Uh, John wrote an amazing story about Mattis for Slate many, many years ago, which I edited. And John has spent a lot of time with with Mattis, who then went on to become, he was a Marine general, Marine commander, I think, right, John? Who went on to become the defense secretary for the first two years of the Trump presidency and then resigned in protest over some Trump decisions. He's now come out with a letter uh, in the Atlantic or an article in the Atlantic in which he uh, deplores the president's division, the way the president tries to divide the country and not unite the country. John, you know Mattis. Um, You've spent a lot of time with him over the years. Is it surprising that he wrote this? And is it surprising he took so long to write it? It's a little surprising. Well, (laughs) I don't know. This is what happens with 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 him. I mean, it's both surprising in the sense that he believes very firmly that um, you know he 
because of what he has dedicated his career to and because he sends a signal in the way he behaves to all of those who are still in the military and because he believes in the underlying rules of the military that he owes the president his silence. He also had a larger sense if one of his criticisms of the president is that the president is breaking the norms, traditions, rules at the heart of his job and at the heart of America, then he can't then decide, well, the ends justify the means in my case, because it sort of has an implicit undermining of his case with Trump, which is that his ends justify the means behavior is um, antithetical to the post and to the country. And then I think there's a third piece, which I don't know from my conversations with him explicitly, but I think is implicit, which is that basically he he knew if he someday had to speak out that he would um, that he would, and that it would, and that his reserve in previous instances would um, perhaps give him more authority. I haven't talked to him since this um, since he posted this. Um, and so I don't really know all the all of the thinking. Um, you know, he has been concerned for. Um, oh, by the way, just one random inter, interlude here. The president, after Mattis wrote this, in a, a strange tweet, which said that he basically um, that he was responsible for giving Mattis the Mad Dog nickname. Now, this is totally wrong, of course. But one of the interesting things about him calling Mattis Mad Dog is that Mattis hates that nickname because it suggests, um, you know, undifferentiated, uh, unthinking uh, aggression, which he styles himself and thinks of himself and, in fact, is a, a person who th- thinks through and and reads a great deal and, and um, tries to be intentional and considered in his actions, whether you agree with them or not. But to claim in this moment to spend the energy of the presidency on seizing the turf of having given him the nickname. I mean, is this wait, Trump tweeted about uh, the nickname. Yeah. He tweeted. Gabfest fans. That was just a teaser to hear the rest of our slate plus conversation. Go to slate.com slash Gabfest plus to become a slate plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. 
your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.